This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. Hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Welcome to episode 270, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. Part of the work of decolonization is taking back our ancestral materials from museums in distant places, far away from the area from which they came. Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia are repatriating items that for many years have been held in the Smithsonian in the United States. There is similar work for us to do here in Newfoundland. There are dozens of Mi'kmaq ancestral items held in the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. In the same country as us, yes, but too distant for most of us to see. If you want to get a look at many of those items, all you have to do is open that famous book by American anthropologist Frank Speck, author of Beothic and Micmac, based on his travels through Newfoundland in the early 1900s. For our guest this week, that book is more like a family album, Pictures of Aunts and Uncles. Natasha Jones believes it's also time for us Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland to begin the conversation about bringing home our ancestral materials. Natasha, nice to see you again. Uh, listeners will remember you uh, being on Mi'kmaq Matters a few weeks ago on your archaeological research. So just give us a little snippet, a little update on how that work is going. It's been going well. Uh, it's been a busy fieldwork season. Uh, to date, I've completed seven interviews. So that's fantastic. I was hoping even one interview would have been great, great to see someone come forward. So seven community members from different communities here in the central region have come forward to speak with me. It's been fantastic. I'm currently working on digitizing the information I got. So taking what they shared with me and putting it to digital maps to identify, you know, to see what clusters we have, what where where the sites are. And Excellent. it's even been a lot of place name gathering. So it's it's been fantastic. It's a lot of work. There's still lots to do, but it's uh, been fantastic. Very good. One thing you mentioned briefly in uh, our previous uh, conversation was your was the Paul family, um, and Paul, of course, is a is a well known Mi'kmaq name throughout Mi'kma'ki. Tell us about your Pauls, where they're from, and um, a little bit about that history. Um, well, my Pauls. They're connected to Badger. They're from Badger, and that's where my mother grew up. Uh, she was a pollen Badger. That's where my grandparents were. That's where I visit them. And we have a long history of being in Badger since the late 1800s. Um, prior to that, I know from oral history that my family came from the Grandies Brook area, so down near Burgio. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, John, who was the gentleman interviewed by Speck, who provided a lot of information to him, uh, he was the man that came over country with his family and came to Badger. Now, none of my, my great-grandfather wasn't born at that time. He didn't have his children at that time, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and before that, it's kind of gray. <laughs> hmm. And there's not much known. So I, I uh, what I've heard is that he's born in the Burgio area himself. Uh, so I don't know if it would be his father, you know, really going back that came from mainland or if we're here even longer than that. 
gets gray back there when you don't have any of the records. But I do know as much as the travel from Grandy's down through Lloyd's. And he had a sister that passed away on the trip. She's buried somewhere along that route on Lloyd's River, which runs into Beathic Lake. And then you would go Beathic Lake to the exploits down into Badger. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, Speck, Frank Speck, um, the author of... uh of several books, including, I guess, the book best known to us, uh, Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland, is is Beothic and Mi'kmaq, as they spelled it back then. And yes. a very important informant in that book is John Paul. And you, John Paul, is your ancestor. I always felt very connected, of course, to both sides of my family. But with my Mi'kmaq side, my mom's side, the Pauls, um, there's a long, very proud history, and I have my grandfather to share all the history of his father and his grandfather and to share those stories. And in combination of having my grandfather with his own stories, but having Speck's book and what my great-great-grandfather John told him, it always felt in a way that I was closer to him as an ancestor than some of my others, because there's just so many stories passed on between what Speck collected and what my own family shared with me. Hmm. And that's not the same case for some sides of my family there's maybe a bit more disconnect with the heritage uh say on my settler side because you know there was some adoptions and you're not so connected i grew up in the internal in the in- interior area of newfoundland i grew up away from the ocean i had no connection to the newfoundland settler ocean story that's mm. completely uh separate from me so mm. cod fishing drying flakes that was uh, a long time ago for my family so mm. we've been in the interior so i think that's why I come from two worlds, but I have such a closer relationship with my Mi'kmaq ancestors and family mm. because there was a lot more living in the culture with mm. having it there alive with my grandfather who didn't hide his identity whatsoever and couldn't if he wanted to with the last name Paul and the fact that he was a very he was a dark skinned man. So that right. that wasn't happening with us. Very right. active in the community coming up in the years with the F and I and then formation of Palabo. Yes. So anyone who flips through the uh, Frank Speck book will find many photographs, um, photographs of basically of your family members. Um, there are, um, there is a daughter of, um, of, uh, of John Paul wearing a caribou coat. Uh, you see photographs of that in the book. And uh, I understand photographs of other family members that weren't identified wearing um the clothes they would have worn at the time. So I suppose uh, flipping through the spec book is a different kind of experience for you because it's almost like a family album. It is. And some of the spec photographs I grew up with as pictures on my grandparents' walls when I was a child. Like I'd use a badger and the picture that you're talking about of John Paul's daughter, uh, Aunt Maggie, you know, here's Aunt Maggie. She was, you know, it was a picture of her with a doll in her coat. And that picture is, very well recognized in the province. I think it's, you see it a lot of times at the Rooms Museum. You see it on social media posts, uh, you know, Daughter of John Paul. And that's the way Frank Speck recorded it too. And that's one of the things in some ways that's disappointing about his work. He just lists Daughter of John Paul. But I know it's my Aunt Maggie. I know her name is Margaret Paul. I know that she married a Patey. She raised her family in Badger, that she still has living children and plenty of grandchildren than I know. And there's so much a deeper connection than just this Mi'kmaq girl holding a doll which is what's usually you know in the museum and it's the same thing for other family members he while Speck took pictures of my great-great-grandfather John and named him 
other family members like my great-grandfather, Frank, and his cousin, Tom Joe, they're not named in the photographs. They're just called two Micmac hunters. But I know their names. And that, that photograph is also on my, my grandparents' house on the wall growing up. So I knew the stories before I ever got old enough to, I guess, interact with Frank Speck's book. And when I did, I just, you finally come to realize exactly how much uh, was recorded and how, how many materials were actually collected growing up. It was like, oh, Aunt Maggie's coat and doll are in the museum. That was the common story you heard. Uh, but I realized much later when I actually read his book that he collected a lot more than the coat and the doll. And actually it's about, it's over 50 items that were collected from the Badger Brook Nigma band. And, and let's, so, and let's talk about those 50 items. So those 50 items Frank Speck collected, and um, I guess he probably bought them back to the States uh, with them. And now at this day, as we speak, they are in a museum in Gatineau, Quebec. Which museum is that? Uh, the Museum of History. It's changed its name a couple of times. It used to be the Museum of Civilization, but now we're at the Museum of Canadian History or History. It's in Gatineau. Uh, yes, it is over 50 items. And I'm not sure if he did take them. While well, he did work out of the States, and he a lot of his items collected were also in the Smithsonian. I'm not sure if he just directly brought them to the Gatineau, Quebec Museum at the time. Uh, but with that, there are questions, of course, I have, you know, of course, how are items collected in the past? What kind of relationship prompted that? Was it trade? Was it bought purchase items? Uh, in the past, the collection of Indigenous cultural materials isn't always clear cut, whether it was above board, we'll say. Um, but there are over 50 items, 57 in total, actually, in the museum. Um, most have photographs. Uh, that you can see. You can search the museum database and see them. It's kind of a challenging database to go through, which is in a way disappointing for anyone who's just a, a descendant. I have the research background behind me. I'm kind of really good at tracking these down. I'm used to the way a lot of the archives work. Uh, but Stephen Augustine published a book uh, a while ago, and it's called, I believe, Nigamon yeah, Malice cultural ancestral materials. And he lists every cultural material in that museum that is of Maliseet and Nigamah origin. Mm -hmm. And there are photographs with that, if available. And so my family's items are listed there too. And so if there's anyone else who's from either of those communities and know that their items or their family items might be in that museum, that's a great resource to go check out to see mm. and to find out how they're logged, what they're logged at. Is everything correct? Are they attributed to the right community or people or person. Um, but then there's that disconnect. They're so far away. Mm. My chances of ever seeing them in person or any family of mine ever seeing them in person is pretty slim. And if um, if we were able to go to Gatineau, Quebec, and go to the Museum of History, could we go in and actually look at them? Uh, are they buying glass displayed, or are they held uh, somewhere in the back rooms and uh, – we would just see pictures of them and would have to make special arrangements to see the actual items. Likely have to make special arrangements. Most are not on display. Most items at the museum are not on display. I do know at times my aunt's coat and doll have been out in the glass displays, but I think it's a, they rotate items. Of course, you get too much. It's all about preservation and conservation with those items. So they don't want to make too much, too much sunlight, too much air access. Uh, I know my aunt's coat and doll were on display at some point. I don't know if they currently are, if they're in the back now. So there is a rotation of items. Uh, descendants can make requests of the museum to see items, though. 
And that's something I think it's really important for anyone to know who is a descendant who might have their family's cultural materials at the museum. That's, you know, if you're able to get to the museum, of course, and make arrangements as a descendant, you have that ability, you know, you are connected to the items. And the same actually goes for the uh, Frank Speck holdings. So Frank Speck's research papers are held in the States. I believe it's the Philadelphia Philosophical Society has the papers. Any researcher making a request, of course, has to pay the fees for such documentation. But descendants do not. I requested Frank Speck's papers, research papers, pertaining to my family and his visit to Newfoundland. And I was a descendant. I let them know I was a descendant, that my great-great-grandfather was interviewed, my family members were photographed, uh, cultural items were collected from my family. So I would really appreciate access to those materials as a descendant. And it was provided to me free of charge. It hmm. takes a while to process, uh, but I did receive the items. Great. Let's talk about Frank Speck. Um, reading his book, uh, Beothic and Micmac, um, he comes across as a kind of respectful person of from, from that time. Um, but then, uh, you know, I guess perhaps he was the best of that generation or better than many in that generation in terms of uh, the way he dealt with Indigenous people. Um, but we have uh, the question of these uh, of these items, and and maybe I, I guess we don't know. Maybe Frank uh, Speck bought them fair and square, gave money, and it was a purchase, and they were willingly sold. And maybe you know it is what it is. Um, so maybe I guess we don't know very much about that about the nature of the arrangement in which he took those items from uh, your family members. Yes and no. Uh, I did not until I requested Frank Speck's papers from the Philosophical Society. And what did you find and out? I was able to find a list uh, in which he lists Newfoundland, Micmac, and he has a list of prices that he purchased items for. However, um, the list leaves a little bit to be desired, as not all 57 items are on that list. And so I don't know whether they were all purchased, if some were gifts, if but I do have some items that have a list with purchase. Did he pay <laughs> fair market value end. for the caribou jacket or did he get them at a F fire sale prices? I would have to work at the math of that time. But when I look at, look at not, he bought three items for 75 cents, a crooked knife and two other items, a chisel. And so I'm not really sure when you look at it, but when not all the items are listed, it leaves you wondering why. Right. Why are some on a purchase list and some not? And uh, it may not matter to the museum, and it matters to us. Uh, maybe it does. Maybe they look at it as a purchase item that's, you know, can't be requested. I would like to see the items, honestly, here in Newfoundland, even if it's transferred to the rooms on a long-term loan, because that's the only way I think family members are going to be able to see. And that goes for all collections. I know it's, okay, it's great to have these collections. They're collected. Maybe Frank's bed did it completely above board. Every item is purchased and well compensated for. Uh, okay, maybe maybe it wasn't, um, but they're they're so far away now from descendant communities mm. and access. And you think about how many that are they're just behind conservation doors, boxed up, protected. But I'm not seeing them. My family's not seeing them. I would love to see my aunt's coat to see the stitching. How did my great great grandmother do the stitching on the coat or the doll? And, you know, is it similar to how I'm doing moccasins? Uh, is it similar to how some of the snowshoes that 
my uncles were doing in Badger. Are they, you know, how's, how's the wrapping? Did anything change from the snowshoes he collected from our community to the ones we're making, you know, in the 90s? And so there's much to be desired with how items are kept away from descendant communities and how they can come back and how they were collected or, you know, what was the relationship with the collector and the, you know, the collectee. Right. It uh, reminds us of um, of Chief Mazal Joe's uh, dealings with the museum in, in Scotland. I mean, a different issue. We're talking about a museum here in Canada, uh, but uh, they're not, as you say, they're not accessible to people, to family members, to Mi'kmaq people in Newfoundland for, for whom this is very important history and to be able to have students and um family members, big mob people go to the rooms or some other accessible place would be a very powerful thing. So uh, has there been, or do you think there will be formal requests, pressure to have them uh, repatriated from uh, Quebec to the island? The time's coming. Uh, you're seeing it actually more and more. Uh, I think we've seen very recently uh, an announcement of Mi'kmaq cultural materials coming are going to be coming back to mainland Mi'kmaq. Um, I believe that's a Smithsonian one, um, but communities are working to get their cultural materials back now because we're, you know, we have, it's not the past anymore. We have much more of a voice and we're, you know, so many community members are working very hard to get into jobs and positions where they can speak for those items. And you have community members in general speaking up more and saying, you know, we are so separated from everything that our grandfather made, our grandmothers. And that separation is part of the long history of colonialization and just everything that's been taken. And it, it's easier to make us invisible when everything's gone. When you think of Mi'kmaq history here on the island, most people are like, nah, they weren't here. And even if they were here, oh, well, they just, they were so intermingled with settler population, they didn't really have a culture. But if people were to see the items, say, from my family, from Badger, you know, it's a lot more visible. It's a lot more present. If, you know, you can't kind of deny that connection and that culture as much when it's there right in your face, mm. you know. And that visibility is really hurtful over the years that, you know, of course, Mi'kmaq people here on the island have been speaking out. It's easy to say, oh, you know, you don't have that connection. You weren't here when there's, you know, so much not here to show for it. There's so many items in other museums as well. You're right. You have the museum in Scotland. There's a museum in Austria that has a canoe. There's a museum in the state that has quill uh, placemats from Newfoundland. So wow. we're probably, you know had a relationship, of course, with our mainland ancestors. We don't have porcupines. <laughs> and, you know, made some trade deals. We got some quills when they brought down some items. And we made our own quill work. But quill work's seen as invisible here because, you know, that's not there to show for it. And they're, mm -hmm. I will tell you right now, they're gorgeous. You should look them up. I'll try and find them for you. Wow. Um, you're, you mentioned that you're your territory is central. You didn't um, grow up uh, near the ocean, uh, drying codfish and all that sort of stuff. Um, central is also, of course, Beothic territory. And um, Frank Speck, through John Paul, uh, connected with uh, a woman who lived in Maine named Santu Tony. And she uh, said that uh, she... She had a Beothic uh, mother, um, uh, and uh, 
and uh, so she she claimed to have both Beothic and, and Bingba heritage. Um, I don't know if we um, and Frank Speck, uh, I think, gave her account credence. He didn't disbelieve it or dismiss it. Um, being from that area, in your uh, both as an archaeologist and uh, as a person of that land, what is what is in your heart about um, the real our relationship uh, with uh, Beothic? Does that ring true to you uh, uh, in a personal and professional way? What are what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's, it's, I guess it's it. Uh, that's the question. You know that I grew up with the in the nineties. You know, in grade school, you had the that that was still in the history books. Nigma uh, came here, were brought here for the purposes of exterminating the Beothic. Uh, afraid that's a myth put forward by the uh, past, some past uh, um, naturalists, Cormac, and you have that building of that history. It's it's a it's a myth. There's there's some really good research out there, published research, where you can dig into that part uh, where that story comes from. Um, what I say, we were looking at what my John shared. He actually shared a story about how the relationship broke down. You know, he points to the Beothic and the Mi'kmaq having a relationship and it kind of going downhill. Um, that's also supported on the side of the Beothic because I believe it was Shannon did it. That's in her own oral history that there were some good relations too. So it's kind of hard to ignore if it comes from both sides that there were some good relations. I'm not saying there weren't bad relations as well. Nobody's going to get along 100% of the time. <laughs> Um, but I think it's foolish to think that they were uh, at odds forever and or that there couldn't have been intermarriage with the Beothic and any other nation. You know, you know, it, Mi'kmaq, uh, people intermarried all the time. There could have been, even been intermarriage between settlers and Beothic. It's possible. It's just unrealistic to think that something like that could have never happened. But stories, oral history, both sides do, do point to some good times and they point to bad times. And I know they always pointed the story in Old Boss. Uh, Mary March or uh, Shannon did a, uh, they saw an Old Boss, they were afraid of them, you know, label Mi'kmaq people bad Indians, essentially. But I'm like, that's one person. You can't use one person as a nation. Hmm. Uh, if we did that, then, you know, we're going to have to rewrite a lot of stories. Uh, maybe he was a bad individual. Um, it's really bad that they use that to kind of say that the Beothic nation never got along with Mi'kmaq nation. <laughs> And you can't use one individual as a scapegoat for a story that you want to tell. But that's what was done, essentially. Um, so I, I do think there's a high likelihood of some good relations. Maybe there were some bad relations, too. Um, you know, nothing is simple. There's lots of gray, always. It was hard to believe that people um, being in the same proximity didn't have uh, relationships of all kinds, shall we say, uh, humans being humans. Oh, it was being humans exactly how could we not you know yes i right. could have a great relationship with one neighbor on the side of me and not so great in the other it doesn't uh, mean that you know, we don't have good times with either bad times with the other one you know we're complex yes why wouldn't relationships in the past be complex yes natasha there's a lot uh there's a lot there a lot uh a lot to discuss a lot to explore um much work to be done so i'm um, i'm glad we have you on the trail well, I'm happy to be here with you. And I would say for any descendant out there who was maybe uh, their ancestor was researched by Frank Speck, 
happens to be, he did a lot of research, not just with the Mi'kmaq Nation. Nescapi, he spent time in Labrador. That's the title of his book, Nescapi. Um, you, you see a lot of older terminology, of course, you're, you're 1900s. But if you're a descendant from any of the communities that Speck did research on, um, you have a chance to go look for information on your family freely and request papers from that, the Philosophical Society. And I think that's something I, I really want to share. It's not just the Mi'kmaq community because he, mm. he worked with other communities. So if you happen to be a descendant, it's worth looking into just to see what he might have collected because his notes have things like what I talked about, that price, that price list. He also sometimes has letters that he exchanged with different people from nations, uh, indigenous elders who would write to him. And so there's a, there might be little jewels in there for family members. Right. And all you history, uh, MA students out there, uh, wanted to do research, uh, I think there's material here that hasn't been, uh, uh, we haven't uh, accessed the full potential of this uh, material, I think. No, you're you're very right. And uh, I think time's coming now. I, I'm very excited. I'm hoping maybe someone will hear about, you know, some new student, younger student will hear about what I'm doing. They'll be like, oh, I want to do that too. Or I know something that I'd like to work on that's similar. And now, you know, if you ever wanted to reach out to me, I'd gladly offer my help to any other student and if there's someone out there that knows something there's always going to be someone who knows something that i don't know if you know something feel free to share it with me i just i love connecting with community members and knowledge sharing works both ways take it in and you give that was archaeologist natasha jones And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Emson Okamata.